the past year held many lessons about how important it is for brands and corporations to embody a purpose. Employers were pushed to take a stance and speak out. They had to be sure their words were backed with actions that made a measurable difference, whether in employee well-being, diversity, equity and inclusion, or climate change. And those actions had better be anchored to a purpose far deeper than profit. The phrase on purpose works well here. Companies have to do purpose very much on purpose. That's because employees want to work for companies that are guided by purpose. Consumers want to buy from companies that see the bigger picture and want to make a positive impact on the world. This is ushering in an exciting new era for internal and external brand communications. One in which, yes, brands need to be far more thoughtful about what they say and do and how they say and do it, but also one in which brands can hold the keys to societal change. I'm Nancy Anderson, and in this episode of the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast, we explore the role of the corporation in society, how it's evolving, and what the implications are. Then stick around for the Red Questionnaire, where we ask the same offbeat questions each month to different guests. This time, we welcome Simone Gupta, new CEO of Havas PR in Australia. But first, we welcome Linda Descano, Executive Vice President of Red Havas US, who will moderate today's roundtable discussion. Linda, welcome. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about the roundtable discussion that we're going to have on this episode? Of course, Nancy. So joining us for our conversation today about the purpose landscape, if you will, are two representatives of Chief Executives for Corporate Purpose, better known as CECP. They are basically a CEO-led organization that helps companies transform how they engage with stakeholders, employees, communities, customers, investors, and so on. Their CEO members represent more than 200 of the world's largest companies from across different industries, representing more than $11.2 trillion in revenue and more than 14 million employees worldwide. They're gonna take us through some work that they've done on their return from being purpose-led from a company perspective and share some of the insights on how companies can operationalize their brand purpose. Perfect. And this past year certainly gave us many lessons that we will speak to during today's discussion. So what do you say we get underway? Absolutely. So Nandika and Alexa, welcome to the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. Thank you I'd for like having to, us. Yeah. Our pleasure. Great to be here. I'd like to start our conversation by reviewing the state of play on corporate purpose, which is something you've explored recently through your paper, Return on Purpose. And everyone who's listening, we will link to the white paper um, in our show notes. So Alexa, would you talk us through what your research and white paper focused on? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having us. So our paper has a number of data points derived from the analysis we did using the Barrett brand management data set and a survey we conducted across Fortune 500 CEOs that we have in our network uh, that support the business case for purpose. But at a high level, the key takeaway is definitely that high purpose brands outperform low purpose ones. It's as simple as that across financial performance metrics, including EBITDA, 
uh, total shareholder return and market value. So with this data, we were able to go beyond this fluffy rhetoric of corporate purpose uh, and that it tends to skew towards and look at it as a more dynamic and complex concept, which has significant implications for CEOs, uh, their investors, policymakers, consumers, and you know the, the list goes on. Uh, we also found that an authentic corporate purpose when experienced through the brand and, and lived through the strategy, uh, this can help create shareholder value while positioning companies to realize a return on purpose over the long term. So this holds especially true during a crisis where during COVID-19, the data suggested that the markets expected companies with stronger corporate purpose to maintain a stronger connection to their consumers and deliver more resilient financial performances as well. So going back to the CEO survey we did, the, the results confirm the role of corporate purpose as a part of crisis management and that operationalizing purpose is possible through having a clear strategic vision of who and what to invest in. And it also looks at the when and the why. So for this reason, this is really the opposite of trade-offs that are often associated with addressing each stakeholder group. Uh, in, this, in this sense, we, we also see CEOs using purpose as a sort of North Star to set their forward-looking vision and also recognizing it as a competitive differentiator, right? That this can play a role in enhancing corporate resilience and alignment across these stakeholder groups. So another point that stuck out uh, was how companies leveraging their purpose to strengthen their values and culture during COVID seem to have had a better time at reinstalling this sense of community among employees and vendors. You know, they're arguably an understated stakeholder group, but suppliers were hit considerably hard by the total disruption to supply chains that ensued as a result of COVID. And we found that several CEOs, you know, big shout out to Bruce Broussard at Humana, they were able to proactively support their suppliers by not only issuing immediate payments or in some cases full refunds, but also creating some content around helping them navigate, helping suppliers navigate this time of crisis, which was really a testament of their clear strategic vision that was ultimately anchored in purpose. Well, thank you so much for, for that summary. There's so, so many directions we can take our conversation. But I think one thing that, that you said really um, resonated with me, and that was the idea of operationalizing purpose, that it, it wasn't just about talking about pledges, but also how do you, how do you op put that pledge into action, which as, as we talked about on our, our, our pre-call, is the focus of a, a new white paper that, that we're releasing on the importance of proving your purpose in, in 2021 and not thinking just narrowly about consumers. But I think you also underscored the importance of taking a 360 view when it comes to purpose and it's your employees, it's your investors, it's your community partners, and it's your suppliers and vendors that are often overlooked many of whom might be small and mid-sized businesses that, that perhaps didn't have their wherewithal to really navigate or the, the tools to navigate a, a crisis on the order of the, the pandemic and the importance of, of organizations really um, of paying attention to that. 
but the, the, this white paper that you published was really based on the conversations and research that you undertook before the presidential election in, in last November and the ushering in of a new administration. And we're speaking you know, on the day after a really watershed moment in US history with this, um, the, the historic guilty verdict um, against uh, Officer Chauvin in the murder of, of uh, George Floyd. Um, and, and even over the past few weeks leading up to this moment, and I think we'll continue as, as we navigate um, the, the, the recent murder of uh, Dante White, um, the voting rights issue in Georgia, we've seen renewed CEO conversations on societal issues. And I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, particularly Nandika, what you're hearing in conversations from CEOs today about um, their ongoing involvement and their role in addressing some of these broader societal issues, because there's been conversations on both sides. Is it partisan or not? Mm -hmm. um, they have employees and, and shareholders and investors and, and customers mm -hmm. that may not all view issues in the same way. So how are they um, approaching this engagement and, and finding a way to balance multiple mm -hmm. Uh, perspectives and multiple audiences. No, and and that's a really good question. Um, and 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 I think the work that we do at um, CCP, um, with particularly because it, it is a coalition led by CEOs, that was a very sort of defining um, um, a construct, if you will, when Paul Newman actually uh, brought this organization to life, along with Sandy Wild, John Whitehead, the icons. Of Wall Street, right? I mean, at that time in the late in the late '90s, um, Wall Street had just come off this mad roller coaster of spending and you know complete lack of moral value, if you will. And these guys stepped in and said, "Hey, you know, we are big business. We have a platform that can make impact and can him have impact both from a policy perspective to the community perspective to our employees and." These last, this last one year, the pandemic, particularly with the impact on lives, especially underserved lives, with the impact on social and racial justice issues, if CEOs were already pivoting slowly in the way they were thinking, if that next new generation of CEOs who were coming up into leadership positions were already kind of thinking with a broader stakeholder perspective in mind, now they have had to really question their being like why is there why does their company exist what is the purpose they've been they've started questioning linda in our closed door sessions the status quo is it you know and many you know we say it's chatham house rules and closed doors because we want these ceos who are really i would you know it might be strong to use the word angst driven but i do think they are because for the first time they have had to look at the impact the emotional and mental impact of these issues on their employees, on their supply chain, because we are all people at the end of the day, right? A company is the people. It's not some registration number sitting in some Delaware office. And these CEOs have had to think about that and think about it deeply. And they have started out with, which I think is commendable, 
is just questioning their own practices. Uh, have we got the right practices in place? Have we been approaching um, the way we talk to our employees uh, on these issues in the right way? For example, um, the CEO of uh, TCS, Tata, Tata Consultancy Services, which is an affiliated member of CCP, recently held a town hall with, his, with their employees and he opened it up and it, you know, he opened it up by talking, asking people to express how they were feeling. Like imagine that, right? Which, you know, in the past, a CEO would open up a town hall by telling you, oh my God, we hit our targets. We've, you know, blown our uh, quarterly earnings numbers out of the ballpark. But he started out by asking people, how are you feeling? And I think that's what I'm hearing in our sessions. CEOs are, big, they are expressing, and not expressing only, but they're realizing that they are a, they are a, 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 a small player in a larger microcosm of what's happening in the world. So they, that humility, that empathy, they are now tapping into those feelings and let, letting themselves express them which they would not have done in the past because they have to be the big, bold, you know, leaders of business, right? But they are human beings and they are really beginning to express that. And what we are hearing is that employees are responding to that. And one more example before I, you know, just ramble on and on. Okay. Um, the, the, the CEO of PSE&G on a recent call was saying, you know, there was this, yeah, um, just because of the politicization in our country, right? The divide has become even more marked than it ever was in our history. Can I build on something actually, Nandika, you were saying, you know, you started off by saying they're, they're reflecting, there's this sense of reflection that I think COVID even drew further. Um, it, it's almost as though they're asking themselves, we exist to solve for what? And there's an aspect of that that seems to be, uh, you know, emphasized that the sum of your purpose needs to be an incorporate the purpose of your employees and some elements of the purpose of your customers, because all of those need to come together and align into this cohesive purpose for your company to drive towards where you're in ensuring that the purpose of everyone you serve is also integrated in some shape or form. And if you're not asking yourself that as a, as a company, this expanded set of stakeholders, again, you mentioned consumers, communities, suppliers are increasingly doing that for them. So you either proactively ask yourself and work on it, or you're going to see the investors and the active consumers coming and, you know, asking those questions. Well, I think you bring, you, you bring up a, a good point, because if you just look at the employee base, and the, there was a study by Deloitte that found two out of three millennials, which, let's face it, that's the generation that will comprise 75% of the global workforce, you know, within the next um, three to five years they primarily choose to work at a company because of its purpose. So you're right in, there is a war for talent. And so if you want to attract, you know, the best talent, if you want to um, have a loyal customer base and customers that will not just be loyal, but become your ambassadors, um, your purpose becomes a real point of, of differentiation. Um, and all too often, it seemed like companies' internal and external areas were, were very siloed and differentiated. And today, I think over the past year, we've seen what we call the rise of the empowered employee, where employees now are, are being 
re-examined as an important stakeholder part and they have expectations of companies um and uh you know you and nandika you brought up a good point it's not about whether you're b2b or b2c it's all about p2p we're yes. all people and Absolutely. we're all communicating no matter what organization we represent whether it's for profit or nonprofit but it's that humanity and i think it has reset expectations for how we engage even how leaders communicate because we're you know we're recording this you know over a video conference we can all see into our personal homes and that that piercing of that divide i think has brought all of us together even more and and has created deeper connections and as leaders have talked to employees over the past year about the pandemic and such i think it's created greater expectations for employees about wanting a voice mm -hmm. in the direction of the company right and how yes. to live um that that purpose so these are are very new issues you know it sounds like from your conversations with ceos this is the long haul this is like a reset for how business gets done Correct. rather than a short-term tactical response. It's really looking at, we have the bigger role to play and it's enlightened self-interest, right? Absolutely. And, and a healthy, economically viable, you know, workforce and community where they operate helps ensure they have the right pipeline of talent, the right, right set of partners to help them continue to deliver their goods and services. So either they can be part of it, and let's face it, there's been a vacuum in, in government in some right. areas, but also mm -hmm. some of the issues we're trying to solve around climate, around social justice, can't be solved by one government um, or one company. It requires a collective effort across all, all different levels and, and ideologies. And I will say, Linda, because I read um, and, and, and a really good report, um, um, congratulations to Red Havas on this, because I do think one of the things that we are hearing from our CEOs, and it is really a very interesting moment in time, I think, is that put aside everything else, the focus is our employees, because your employees are the reason a company will survive, thrive, exist for the long term. If you don't have engaged uh, employees who feel that the company and the CEO in particular has their best interests at heart, they are not gonna show up. They're not gonna produce. They're not gonna be there for the long term. They are looking for a company that shows heart more than it shows the bottom line, you know? And, and I think your piece, particularly on the destigmatizing of mental health challenges, that is a big focus area because I, um, in, in some of the work that we are doing at the CEO Investor Forum, a particular discrete project that we've just kind of uh, starting on um, is going to be looking at, uh, amongst other things, the mental health issues of frontline workers and what that has meant over this past one year, particularly that this pandemic has, is going to change the way we we, we approach work uh, for the future. I was just reading this book by Simon Sinek that said, start with why. And, and I think he really talks about how, you know, um, when you translate your purpose in such a way that your employees can feel it rather than it being words on a paper, that you're actually 
making it into an actionable moment in time for your employees, um, that's when the real magic happens. That's when you go from just being a good company to becoming a great company. You know, and J&J, Unilever, I mean, we can name so many brands, right? Nike. These are brands who have operationalized purpose in a way that their employees get it. Nike has stood up and had a voice on so many critical issues that they will have a brand following, if not just for their products, but just because of who they are as a company. I mean, that's, I personally you know, think that that's, that's a huge step. And PayPal did the same thing in North Carolina with the, with the um, transgender issue, bathroom issues, right? Uh, I forget the name of that particular policy, but, um, and, they, and they did not uh, invest in North Carolina as a business. And their employees applauded them for that. So I think, I think employees to me is kind of where the rubber hits the road. Um, I think for the next long-term future of this, of this uh, corporate America. I, I agree. You know, Gallup has done numerous surveys, and they they continue to do so each year on employee well-being within the companies. And one thing that it really speaks up for is: Do your employees feel fulfilled at work? And that fulfillment that that it's almost a data point now that you can trace back to through retention and attrition rates. Understanding, engaging a pulse for how your employees feel at work can say a lot about the success of you operationalizing purpose as a chief executive or as a board of directors. Is it really getting implemented and embedded across the different business functions? Of course, if you're a brand that has, if you're a company that has several brands, it's gonna be almost more challenging for you to ensure your cohesive purpose is evident in each one. So that's definitely, a, again, a challenge. Um, but we are seeing, you know, tying it back to the long term, we are seeing a lot of companies pivoting, operationalizing their purpose from a short term expense and seeing it more as this long term investment. So we like to say it's, it's almost like the new R&D, if you will. No, that, that's a really good point. And, and I think it also underscores, um, you know, uh, the importance of, of constantly looking at what are you saying internally? and externally, Correct. but are, is your behavior consistent with your words? Do your actions match your word? And we know that even the companies that um, in many cases have made impressive commitments and have moved the ball forward in certain areas still struggle in some, whether it's the representation of people of color at the leadership level or on the board, um, you know, so th there's a humility if you will, that also has to go with this because there's aspirations, but then there's the hard work of actually um, taking actions and generating results from those actions that I think you would agree it's important that companies be really authentic and real about where they are versus where they aspire to be. Correct. And uh, because if, if your employees don't see that alignment, you create a gap and a disconnect. And today, any of us can go to social media and say, well, I know my employer said X, right. but this is my experience. And that, that, so there's, it's a double-edged sword and it's important to, to manage and, and treat this as something you don't just look at because a crisis hits, but this is part of the fabric of how you operate as a, as a business. So to your point, Alexa, taking a, 
a long-term view. You, yeah, and, and that is actually, and, and exactly, and, and you know what we have found in our work at the CEO Investor Forum, that institutional investors actually reward that kind of behavior. And the reason we have a long-term plan, and the reason that we have guidance that we provide our companies who publicly share their long-term plan is because um, we, institutional investors are saying that in the short term, we don't care if you're not really meeting all your, you know, goals or your 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 um, you know your bottom line results or whatever that that whatever that might be, because you are actually investing for the long term, and that's why they want to look at what your three, five, seven year plan looks like, because then they can say, okay, fine, that's where the company is headed. We believe in this company. We will we will uh, support it on its journey. And that keeps also the company accountable, right? I mean, I think it's a two-way street. So I, I totally agree with you, Linda. I think, I think it is really important not just to just to have a a, a, a statement that looks good on your website or you know whatever, but what are the measures in place within your organization that can, that will hold you accountable? Um, you, the company accountable to all your stakeholders, employees, investors, suppliers, consumers, I mean, you know, the whole spectrum. And I think that's a key part, the measuring of that is a key part of how, um, how we will see this, what I hope will be what Paul Newman wanted, companies to be a force for good and companies actually becoming a force for good, right? I think that is, that is a key part of it, the accountability, the measurement. Um, yeah, on that, please. authenticity really helps avoid the kind of purpose washing that can also happen. So you have both ends mm -hmm. of the spectrum. You have companies coming out and making all these amazing purpose statements. But as Nandika said, if they're not operationalizing it, if they're not taking authentic action, they're not including their employees or asking the question, how can we do better, you know, across your stakeholder groups and doing that stakeholder, multi-stakeholder oriented materiality assessment Right. And how do you anticipate to get to the, the actual metrics that tackle the biggest challenges for you? Uh, so it's really about pinpointing what those pain points are and then working with that to, again, operationalize your purpose authentically. Right. So this is really an always on program that, you know, as you said, you start with a, an assessment based on, you know, the, the commitments or the areas that you want to focus on as a brand, how you define your purpose, then under how are you going to track your progress? Um, and then what is the mechanism for reporting that progress to your different stakeholders? But it's also about thinking through the, the different perspectives of the stakeholders as you build that journey and as you evaluate those opportunities. So you're thinking in a very holistic way um, and then have that, that built into your communications Correct. plan as well. Yeah, on that, I just wanted to, to interject to, I think there's one point we haven't made yet, which is ESG, environmental social governance, all this criteria that investors are looking at company performance against really ties into, and is almost an expression of your purpose statement. Mm -hmm. So when you have the purpose statement at a high level, you know, navigating that the brand as a North Star, as a compass, whatever you want to relate it to, you can do so through the way you address your ESG issues and the materiality behind that, whether you, you know, align with the sustainability accounting standards board, SASB, 
or you know other industry affiliations, you'll be able to again understand where purpose is less evident and where you need to enhance it. So most of our our listeners are communicators. Um, they either sit within organizations, com- you know, from <coughs> companies, governments, uh, nonprofit organizations, or like me, they work in an agency. But we share that we're advising um, brands and and companies and such on how to engage with different stakeholders. Um, so if you had one piece of advice that you would offer about how to really engage authentically and credibly around purpose, what would it be? Um, uh, Alexa, maybe we can start with you. Yeah, sure. My, my one piece I'd say is twofold, if that's okay. Uh, I would say it's, it's definitely critical for companies to view the way they, they operationalize purpose as both a competitive advantage that we spoke of earlier, but also as a risk mitigant that aligning your business strategy with your purpose and being more transparent around the how, right, helps avoid the creation of investor blind spots. So in turn, you, you're, you're basically taking back control of your narrative by issuing your purpose statement and then following through with those relevant metrics on how exactly that's being operationalized and answering for the how. Terrific, and Nandika? Um, I would say it's it's um, your authentic voice, right? It's the it's communication, communication, communication. You cannot communicate enough, and I do think that making sure that the uh, acknowledging, as you had said earlier, Linda, that yes, there are gaps, but we are working towards it. Like that authenticity, that transparency, that honesty. I think that is critical in the world that we live in today. So I would say be authentic, be honest and be transparent. Well, thank you so much. Great points to end our conversation on. Um, you know, we, uh, we will link to the, the CEO Investor Forum website and your Return on Purpose white paper in our show notes. And we hope that you'll consider coming back so that we can continue the conversation around purpose and perhaps hear more about what you're hearing from CEOs as we get through the next phase of of conversations um, and um, corporate reporting on on these important issues. Um, Thank you and have a great rest of your day. Thank Thank you you for having us, Linda. Joining us for the Red Questionnaire this month is Simone Gupta, who has recently been promoted to Head of PR at Havas in Australia. She is a strategic board level business lead and leadership coach, currently overseeing the Aussie divisions of creative PR agencies Red Havas and One Green Bean. She has also been active in the gender equality discussion for many years, hosting industry panels on women in creative senior leadership roles. Through her career, she has also been founding deputy chair of PR industry body, the PR Council of Australia, and founding chairman of girls' rights charity, One Woman at a Time. Simone, thank you so much for taking the time today to join us for the podcast. We have a few topics to cover today and really keen to hear a bit about you and your industry experience. Shall we get started? Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a bit early in the morning here. It's 6am in Australia, but it's um, good to be up and talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. So first up, can you tell us a bit about your very first job? My very first job in PR was I was the publicist for Leeds Student Radio when I was at university. And um, 
I did the PR degree up there and uh, we had a lot of fun. I didn't really know what I was doing, what a publicist was supposed to do, but we definitely had a lot of fun and um, that really got me interested in the media in general. And there was a short while where I thought I might even go into radio, Um, but then I went into an agency, a small local agency in Leeds, um, straight out of uni. Great. Well, I guess we're sort of having a, having another go at radio, coming full circle on the podcast, yeah. aren't we? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And um, and the great thing was it just, the reason why I loved it was sort of the reason why I'm in the industry is that it was so varied and I got to meet a lot of people and that it was always very topical and connected to culture. And I think that's really why I've enjoyed agency life so much. Great. Yeah, really good to hear. And I guess today, you know, as a business leader, how do you like to work and how do you encourage your team to work? Would you say you're an early riser, like today, obviously, up 6am, or someone who likes to burn the midnight oil? I'm most definitely 100% an early riser. So that's why this um, chat does work for me. Um, Apart from the fact that I've got six-year-old twins, which means that if I want to get anything done, I have to get up before them. Um, so if I want to, you know, get a little bit of work done, do some exercise, get ready for the day, then I have to get up before them. And that's OK with me, actually. Um, I find that in the mornings, my brain is at its best for problem solving. And then when it gets to the late evenings, if I'm, for example, connecting with the Havas team um, in London, um, that's when my problem solving brain starts to fail me a little bit. Um, so yeah, I'm most definitely an early riser. Um, and how I w- encourage my team to work is really, you know, we're in a very flexible age of working and that, you know, over the last year that's been accelerated. And I, I'm really keen just for my team to work in the, in the rhythm that suits them, in the rhythm when their brains are at their freshest and good at problem solving. And whether that is, you know, currently we're three days in the office together. So we all come in together Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, so we've got that time together to really collaborate and share ideas and have those sort of corridor conversations that you don't get uh, over the over Zoom and Teams. And then we do two days at home, which, you know, working in PR, the, the team are using those days quite often as writing days and get, getting things um, decks done, getting the things written for clients um, and doing a bit of alone thinking. So how I get my team to work is really just to encourage them to understand their own sort of authentic rhythm and what works for them so that they can, you know, optimise the working day to their advantage. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, over in the UK as well, we're starting to open up a little bit and our office is now open as well. So I think giving giving people a mix allows them to sort of have that flexibility. And, and like you said, you know, you're a mum of two twins. Um, so I imagine it gives you that flexibility as well and some time at home with the kids as well so that must be nice yeah yeah it is the flexibility I mean does really work that what I have seen though is that we've really gained momentum being back in the office together I think there was a time a few months ago we're like wow will we ever go back into the office again and there's businesses 
um, I think particularly in the States like Google and Amazon that was saying nobody has to come back into the office forever. Or I, I, I read a couple of businesses that were doing that um, in the same way. I think the business that we are in, which is about creating good business solutions and good ideas to help brands and clients, we need to have that space where we're interacting closely together. And um, and the momentum that we've picked up since we've been back together. And I say this more as, I mean, it is business momentum, like commercial momentum, but also it's just that sort of morale, the culture, the quality of the ideas, the way we're able to problem solve in a in a more effective way. I can really see the difference being back in the office. Definitely. And I guess, you know, that kind of brings us into our next question. We always ask our red questionnaire guests how many stamps they have in their passport. But I guess over the last year, things have have really changed and we're in a in a global team where where travel's a little bit trickier now. I know you have a lot of colleagues over in the US and also in the UK as well. How do you think, you know, the pandemic has really affected working relationships, I guess, across national borders? And, you know, do you see yourself traveling anytime in the future? I I, th- I actually think the pandemic in some ways has been very good for working online with um, partners in different locations, whether they're client partners, agency partners, and whether it's between Sydney and Melbourne or Sydney and New York. Um, What we've proved is that we can actually use technology very effectively to have meetings and discussions and workshops and present work and I you know I never thought that we would present and pitch over Zoom and Teams but we've we have got much better at it you know we, we're doing the things that we're learning along the way for example you know we we never present in a group on Teams and Zooms we did in the early days I remember the first pitch you know that was actually probably pre-pandemic where we did a pitch on on uh, on Zoom where we all were in in a room but now we wouldn't do that you know we're we're ensuring that everybody you can see everybody's face that is presenting we make sure we've got cameras on on. we make sure that um you know the the decks that we're presenting are really clear and concise so that they can be digested really simply on a small computer screen so all of those things i think we've really honed our skills of how do we present how do we connect and discuss over Zoom, so in some ways, it has improved the the regular contact we have with people that are not in the same location, which I'm all for that. Um, now, will we go back to the kind of international travel we've seen in the past? Like, I need to go to a meeting in Singapore for one night. I, I don't just don't think we'll we'll see that. I mean, apart from the obvious sort of carbon footprint reasons, which had been talked about extensively pre the pandemic and the cost attached to it. I think we've proved quite effectively that we don't need to do that. Um, But look, people still love to travel. That is one of the reasons why I've loved my job. I've worked in the UK, I've worked in the States, in Los Angeles, and I've worked in Australia. And I've traveled all over the world, you know, with this work. I've been to China, I've been all over Europe. And so I know that there there is still a bit of a thirst for that. for 
just to interact at that global level. Um, so I feel like it won't be gone, it isn't completely gone, but it will take a different shape. Um, you know, we've even seen things like huge festivals like Cannes or South by Southwest trying to move the product online. I don't know whether that's whether what will happen to those kind of things. I don't think that the online product is as interesting or fun or um, collaborative because that's what a lot of those those big festivals are about, just collaborating and meeting people. And um, so, yeah, I feel like it will take a different form, but I don't think we'll fully see that for really for the until two or three years time. So in our industry, we're constantly keeping up with the news and scouting what's trending on social. Do you have a favourite person, be it celebrity or inspirational thought leader, that you follow on social media? Yeah, do you know, the one, I had to be honest with this one. There was no big inspiring um, leaders on this one. My the, the, the things I follow on social media and Instagram are usually just funny things to make me laugh in the, you know, in the middle of all the chaos. Um, so my... The one that I follow the most is DJ Fat Tony in London, who <laughs> basically is just a series of memes laughing at life. Um, the other one that I really love as well, which is out of London, is Soho House memes, which sort of takes takes the the, the Mickey out of Soho House members, of which, for disclosure, I was once my, one myself. But they have some very um, funny memes about the silliness of going to Soho House and. Uh, trying to get in with your guests and ordering drinks and stuff. So that always makes me laugh. Um, from a sort of news perspective, the podcast that I got into in the last uh, couple of years is The Daily. I don't know whether you've um, listened to that. It's it's run by The New York Times, by um, a New York Times journalist, uh, Michael Barbaro. And it's 20 minutes and it's he does it five days a week on weekdays. And it, particularly through the U.S. election, he he was like literally my go-to person just to understand everything that was happening in U.S. politics. And it was like this little twenty-minute sound sound bite. I could on I would listen to it while I was getting dressed, while I was getting ready, um, and that gave me that really great insight into what was happening in the U.S. Which I think for people who haven't grown up there can sometimes get a little bit confusing, like how the election works, what all the different terms means, what you know leading into leading into the actual like the day of the election it got quite exciting so that would be my go-to little sort of US news um bite the daily and that's I've listened I've listened to that sort of mainly running up to the election last year and I still tune into it now great I think um you know, a couple of surprising answers there, if I'm being honest, but a, a nice insight into your personality. And we'll definitely um, we'll definitely have to check out those memes with Soho House for sure. So I've got a bit of homework to do. Yeah, they're really, really funny. And then I, actually, I do have one other that I really love, which is um, uh, it's actually a friend of mine who lives in New York. It's a beauty podcast called um, Naked Beauty Planet. And um, it's a podcast and she has stuff on Instagram, a woman called Brooke DeVard, an African-American woman called Brooke DeVard. And it's about it's a beauty. It's about essentially about beauty and skincare routines and the kind of things that encompass beauty. She interviews all different kinds of women, but also she talks a lot about what it, sort of what makes you feel beautiful as a woman over and above the externals. So it's kind of like internal, external beauty. 
and um, she interviews women from all different backgrounds, but has a particular focus on African-American women. She's also um, a product manager at Instagram as well. So she has all these different influences on there, um, journalists, people who are behind beauty lines, like she's got some pretty big hitters on there. So um, she's also my sort of go-to for a bit of feminist beauty. Oh, I love that. I'll definitely check that one out too. And maybe we can put a, a link to that one in our yeah. in our show notes. So, you know, everyone can go and check it out after the podcast. Yeah, great. So now let's talk headlines. We're all about headlines in PR. So what is one headline grabbing your attention at the moment or one that should be at the forefront of the global news agenda right now? Um, so I've got two headlines that are grabbing my attention at the moment, also both female related. One's in the light and one is in the dark. Um, the first one that is in the light, I think, is Addison Ray, the TikToker who's got, uh, yep. she's got nearly 80 million followers, has launched a beauty line. And the reason why I think that that's interesting is, you know, I work in, you know, I manage an influencer agency here in Australia. Um, I think from a brand and product perspective, we're going to see a lot more influencers selling products directly obviously led by the Kardashian empire. Um, but yeah, I, f I found it very interesting of, you know, in the future of certain kinds of products, particularly, for example, in the beauty space, where does that leave, you know, traditional businesses? I, I feel like they are going to be the next business that's going to get really um, interrupted. Um, and Addison Rae launching her beauty line, I just feel like is a, a sign of that. Um, I think the platforms are improving of how you can purchase via the platforms, making it a much more frictionless experience for the consumer. So Facebook, Instagram, um, Pinterest already does it. So I feel like that space is really going to open up from a consumer perspective. And so for our job, I work in consumer and brand PR in the main. That's sort of like been my bread and butter, you know, what happens to traditional brands who are selling through traditional channels and um, particularly this further generation that's growing up with social media as their sort of main media format and now their main path to purchase so that's um, that's an interesting headline that I think you know have a look at that if you are not across how people are selling via social channels that is something I'm expecting to really blow up in a big way in the next two years. Um, so that's my headline that's in the light. My headline that's in the dark is um, that Afghanistan has started to come back into the headlines because the US has pulled out. And um, I recently, I was a little bit behind with this one, but I recently read Malala's book about what it was like to be a woman under the Taliban. And yeah. so they're already starting to close schools there. Um, and you know, she obviously spoke out about the closure of her school and that resulted in her being shot by the Taliban. And I just feel like that is something that I would like people to know and understand that there are so many places in the world where particularly women do not have access to education. Um, I was the co-founder of a charity in the UK that pays for education in, in a really small part of Kenya 
where women of the Pakot tribe do not go to school. They they are usually uh, married very young um, and exchanged for a dowry of cattle. So they're like a key part of the economy and they have to have F, uh, FGM as part of that process. Um, and that charity pays for 100 girls to go to school and university in this very small area, this northern part of Kenya near the Ugandan border. So I just feel like that as a headline of um, which was sparked for me with um, the Taliban being in the, in the news again, just around women and their access to education, I think is just a really important issue for people to understand because if women and mothers are not educated, then it makes it really hard for a community to succeed and be a fair community and to succeed in so many different ways. You know, educated, uneducated women are much more likely to have children much younger, die in childbirth, have children that will die young, like all of those statistics that really, um, that are really, mean that children and then that community is not so is not thriving happen can often lead right back to whether women are educated and go to school so um so yeah so that's my headline that's in the dark i love that one i think as well just given the year that's been the pandemic has clearly a lot of research is coming out showing that it's disproportionately affected women um across all countries and it's really important I think that we sort of shed a spotlight on that and in our industry and the communications world do as much as we can to sort of bring more awareness and attention to really important causes like this one. Absolutely absolutely and yeah the pandemic has hit has has hit those developing countries much harder than it has hit any of us and you know I'll give you an example if in that area in Kenya there are they closed down the schools. It's a very rural area. They closed down the schools as part of their um, lockdown COVID protection and sent all the girls, they're mainly boarding schools there because people have to travel quite far to go to school and sent all the girls back to their villages. And at one point uh, in June and July last year, they were doing, they were having um, F- FGM ceremonies and up to like 300 girls a day were being cut who should have would have been in school. But they were being cut for like pretty serious reasons because they are a key part of the economy and the markets were closed because of COVID. So that p- people, families couldn't trade. So they were being cut so they could then be married in exchange for a dowry of cattle. So it's like these really basics, you know, um, that we why we it's so essential that we ensure that women are educated. So cliches are cliches for a reason. Do you have a favourite? Yes, I do. Um, being in the right place at the right time. Um, I feel like that's been part of my career journey. Um, I've travelled a lot with this role, but for example, um, many years ago, I was going on on holiday to Los Angeles, and I went for lunch with um, a woman, Priya McMahon, who owned uh, two agencies here in Australia. And I said, I'm going on holiday um, in a couple of weeks to Los Angeles. She said, oh, do you want a job there? I've got an agency over there. You know, so there was just I've just had loads of those little instances. But I would probably add to that being in the right place at the right time and being the right person, because um, clearly there was just things that I had 
done and prepared for that ensured that I could just take those opportunities and have the confidence and courage to take them. Um, so, yeah, it's a cliche, but I feel like it's applied to quite a few uh, situations in my life. And finally, what's your message of encouragement and enlightenment? Do you operate or live by a specific mantra? Yes, I do. Um, and my mantra is to thine own self be true. Um, you know, I've mentioned it before in interviews. Being your authentic self, whether it's at work or in your relationship or in any part of your life, understanding who you are fairly and objectively, understanding what your strengths are, what your gaps are, what you need to learn, where you need help. I think that that is like the basis for a happy life. It's the basis for enjoying your job. It's the basis for um, choosing the, the right job. Um, it's the basis for enjoying the family life that you're in. Um, so, yeah, so that's mine. Just be in your, being your authentic self. And I try to bring that, you know, to, the, to work myself every day. I think authenticity is, you know, not only important in terms of our daily lives and what we bring to the table, but, you know, in terms of who we are as a company and a business, um, particularly after the last 12 months, we're seeing that consumers are also really holding brands and companies accountable for being authentic, you know, sort of leading with heart and purpose at their core and, you know, standing up for what they believe in and core issues like some of the ones you addressed today around women's rights, um, sustainability, etc. So, you know, I think a nice way to end this conversation around authenticity. Yeah, lovely. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. It was uh, good to sort of pick my brains with these questions. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on, on the podcast. Um, we're, we're so thrilled to have you and to welcome you into the Red Havas Network as well. So thanks, Simone, for your time today. Thank you for joining the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. We hope you'll join us again for more of the latest communications, insights and trends from the team at Red Havas. Please make sure to subscribe to the show using your favorite podcasting app, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Don't forget to rate and review today's show. We'd love to hear from you.